This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello, I am Mark Borderstone, and welcome to The End of History, a monthly program presented by the Canterbury Socialist Society where we discuss the class struggle, contemporary unionism, economics and current affairs in order to promote working class history and socialist ideas as they apply to the 21st century. Kia ora koutou, no mai haere mai, welcome to The End of History, a radio show slash podcast brought to you by the Canterbury Socialist Society. My name is Shannon Burns and I'm an executive member of the Canterbury Socialist Society. I'm also quite evidently the host of this show, The End of History. It's great to be able to bring you all another episode. For those of you who already know all about the Canterbury Socialist Society, please bear with. For those of you who are new to this show, and I hope there are some of you, the Canterbury Socialist Society, or the CSS, is a socialist organisation based in Ōtautahi Christchurch. The CSS hosts regular educational and social events in order to promote working class history, a political economic system that prioritises need and not the accumulation of private wealth, and so a more egalitarian society. The CSS is also affiliated to the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, which has a presence in Wellington and Otago, and hopefully elsewhere soon. If you would like to learn more about the CSS or other socialist societies in the New Zealand Federation of Socialist Societies, you can head to socialistsocieties.org.nz. You can also contact us, the CSS, via email at canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz at gmail.com. I'll have a little bit more to say about some Canterbury Socialist Society events at the end of this episode. Right now, it's my pleasure to introduce this month's special guest, the Ōtautahi Christchurch-based artist and library's learning specialist, also my co-worker and friend, Liam Craigsman. Liam and I recently sat down to chat art in the context of capitalism and to speculate about art in the context of socialism. It was quite a freewheeling conversation, inspired in part by other chats that Liam and I have had during the nine to five hours. In fact, our recorded conversation reminds me a lot of some past episodes of The End of History, where I've been able to talk more conceptually, I guess, with guests, rather than about specific roles that they might currently occupy. Not that that's bad crack, it's just really nice to be able to think and talk about a topic with few limitations or without specific goals in mind, and I think you'll see what I mean. This conversation is about 40 minutes long, and after it, you'll hear a song selected for you by Liam. I generally try to give guests an opportunity to pick a song that reflects their contribution to the show, or maybe just a song that they're enjoying at the minute. I'll be back after that song with the quickest of resource reviews and a little bit more about Canterbury Socialist Society events in August. Please enjoy Liam and I on art, capitalism, socialism and more. Okay, so I am here with my special guest Liam. Liam, can you please introduce yourself to listeners? Kia ora, my name is Liam, uh, Liam Craigsman and I am a sometimes artist based in Otatahi Christchurch. Excellent. Would you like to say any more about yourself? Yeah, uh, I work at the library and I studied at (laughs) at the University of Canterbury, studying fine arts, majoring in sculpture. 
since then, I have been part of an artist-run initiative, uh, Hot Lunch in Christchurch with Lee Richardson and Millie Galbraith. Uh, that was for one year. And uh, from from that, we made a book, which we are desperately trying to get rid of. <laughs> it's there very are good. so many copies sitting in a garage somewhere that we would love to move. I think we'll talk a little bit more about Hot Lunch and the book in a bit and also yeah. toward the end of this. So I'm glad you mentioned it. I think it's also available through Christchurch City Libraries. Is it is, right? yes. Yeah, we've got a couple <laughs> copies there. Uh, I've been meaning to deposit some copies at uh, the National Library. I just haven't got around to it yet. Um, it's not enough hours <laughs> in the day. No. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your art practice? So you said you majored in sculpture, but what do you actually make? Can you paint a picture? It really, it's a bad turn of phrase. It, but it, <laughs> it kind of, I guess... Uh, my practice anyway is sort of it it's specific to the project itself. So I've I guess I make installations, but yeah, I don't know, it's hard to explain what I do. And I get this question a lot and it's really difficult because like everyone has a different interpretation of what sculpture is. A lot of people think it's like wrought iron or like rusted metal and stuff and garden ornaments. Uh it's not that for me. But yeah, the material that they use is really dependent on the project itself. Um, so it's usually well, like, well, sort of well researched. And uh, I mean, I guess at the moment is sort of taken a focus around um, sort of assembly lines and like kind of like factory aesthetic, I guess, is what I'm going for. And that's sort of based in a kind of like a, a I guess, um, some practical research where I worked in a, a honey factory for a long time. Um, so I was used to that sort of aesthetic. Yeah. Maybe you could tell me about like one or two specific works of yours. I'm thinking of, I didn't get a chance to see it. I think it was because of like COVID stuff happening. Yeah, but yeah. when you first sort of, we worked together, when you first sort of started about that time, you were due to exhibit at Coco, wasn't it? I yes. Think? Yeah. And you told me a little bit about like a rotating hot dog. Maybe yeah. you could tell me about that or yeah. some other of your pieces. Yeah. So my most recent work was um, More Than This, which was at Coca, and that was in March last year. And uh, so that work was uh, specifically was uh, took took inspiration from um, a rotating uh, hot dog machine um, used for cooking bratwurst. And I sort of took that idea and sort of blew it up a little bit and kind of applied I guess like a more industrial aesthetic where the sausages were really big and uh, <laughs> and the machinery was pretty flawed it was not uh, it was actually quite stressful it was like a yeah a lot of ongoing labor trying to get it working which you know it, it, not a cop-out but kind of uh, sort of was part of the work. Yeah because I don't normally think about if you I'm not a Nazi person, but if you think about more traditional forms of art like painting or whatever, you mm. don't think about there being much in the way of maintenance, like yes, mm. in terms of its longevity, but not really as it's being exhibited. Yeah, and with oh, like I got COVID after the opening and so the thing wasn't working. I was getting lots of texts and stuff saying, oh, what's, do you want us to like switch it on or you know what? And it was like quite, it's quite stressful and eventually I was able to get in there and sort of like, nurse it yeah but like it does sound like kind of crazy the idea and the actual work but like I like to think that it actually made a bit of sense what were you hoping that you can tell me if this is Mm. a wrong question but 
you've said a little bit about what you were kind of exploring through that. You're welcome mm. to say a little bit more about the kind of like, I don't know, themes that you're interested in. Mm. But also, do you want people who encounter your work to come away with something specific? Thinking about specific things? Yes. <laughs> Do yes. tell. <laughs> well, well, you know, I really dislike the idea that, um, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's viewers, like, interpretation or whatever. But, like, if that's the case, then you haven't really done your job. I mean, true that you should be able to sort of, like, engage with an artwork and then maybe come to an understanding. This work in particular was sort of based around Mark Fisher's capitalist realism, um, sort of like this inescapable you know that there, there, there is no other way but capitalism. Like there's no no future essentially. Our future's on hold. And I guess I had read too much and uh, became quite depressed. <laughs> <laughs> this very yeah so sad but quite meta. <laughs> yeah, and I sort of tied that to the the Roxy Music song more than this. Um, so like you know that there is nothing more than this. There never will be anything more than this. And I quite enjoyed like the the music video for it being quite meta and like fourth wall breaking because I feel like that's basically our postmodern condition where it, it is a lot of like turning to the camera and yeah. So the the work was sort of based around that idea, but it also sort of tied in the film uh, by Jean Luc Godard uh, um, to the Bien, um, which is basically takes place in a sausage factory in, <laughs> in, in France in the nineteen seventies, and we. I guess listeners will probably be aware of what happened then. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> uh, it was it was like kind of like the last stand uh, for like labor relations, or and it was like quite a lot of disquiet over like pay, working conditions, and that sort of thing. But Goddard sort of like encapsulates that in one setting in this factory where they do sort of like a wildcat strike, and it, the filmography is just, you know the set design and everything is just amazing. It's sort of like there's one scene which I quite I quite enjoy, which is um, it's a panning shot and it's basically like a cross-section of the factory. So you can see like the hierarchy, so like the, you know, workers and then obviously like the managers and things. And, and, and it's really, I don't know, it's quite beautiful. And also like quite like how that relates to like a, a sausage and the fact that it is like kind of like this amalgamation of different things, um, not quite often, not from the same animal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, in particular. It's like, a very much an alienated product. <laughs> it, well, it is, yeah. yeah. And um, I can't think of a, a better example of it than the the sizzler, the humble sizzler, <laughs> which, which is like kind of, it sort of like represents that sort of market ideology where it's just like, we need to extract value from literally anything, and we, so they take basically the scraps and uh, add some um, add some bread or something to it. I think <laughs> to make this unholy product, which is delicious, it's a little disconcerting that it has an, a burst proof like <laughs> coating or something, so that you know, like the cheese doesn't explode in the pan or something. So it's got a skin. Anyway, like I just find that quite oddly perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. In terms of your art specifically, do people have to encounter it live, as it were, or mm. do you keep track of your works, like maybe digitally or anything, like on a website? Or uh, I have one poor, like, wow. Yeah. No, I've got I've got a video of the work working, <laughs> which is on the Instagram. 
but otherwise the work exists at my parents' house and sort of a little bit of disrepair. I need to get around to actually like fixing it. I quite enjoy that as part of the whole commentary though, that it's yeah. like sort of being stored in your parents' house where yeah. there's some space. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, it does make sense. You yeah. Know. Um, just before we talk a little bit more about art, I thought maybe I would ask you, you've mentioned some things that are obviously super relevant to socialism, mm. but is that something that socialism, something that you're interested in generally um, and what's your kind of understanding of it? Are you sympathetic to socialism? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, I am. Yeah. Uh, I mean, my understanding of socialism, I guess, is is sort of around like labor having done a manufacturing job, I guess, and then going into more of a like email email job. I have that experience in an also yeah, just sympathetic to workers' rights and working conditions. I feel like you probably have a good sense of like through your experiences, you know, on the one hand, the kind of automation stuff which maybe comes through in your art and then also the like wasted time or the waste that um Yeah that's produced just by the way that we work at the moment, even in our job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I guess art under capitalism is um, some, like I'm very interested in the interaction of capital and the arts. Um, and I really hate it. <laughs> I think it produces bad art, but I think I work from the understanding that art is like, is an asset or is like uh, something with speculative value. Basically, Art as, as a marketplace, um, as having value in a marketplace, which I find quite uncomfortable because I guess uh, to go to the very beginning of the where it all sort of comes from is like New Zealand is like a colonial venture and it's, and it's from that colonialism that comes the utilitarianism, so sort of like function over form. And I guess, you know, even to go further back, it's it's sort of this Protestant work ethic sort of thing going on where it's like, I see, you know, the iconoclasm, sort of like destruction of iconography and things as a response to, you know, the sort of more Catholic, like metaphysical sort of thing. Um, and, and I mean, to be fair, that Catholics did have that indulgence thing going where you could basically balance your sins um, yeah. <laughs> by paying some, some coins. And I guess, the, the, you know, if you look at the Reformation as sort of being like this shift away from um, – the sacraments, which were like quite communal activities to being sort of like a real, it's like a real individual relationship with God. And um, that very much translates to the way that we experience, I guess, art and probably quite interesting for you. I've just thinking off the top of my head, hmm. sculpture is more one of the um, mediums that you think of as having the potential to be quite a public yes. form. Yep. So it, it sort of could be either something that exists in communal spaces and is experienced by communities mm. and stuff or like that more commodified form of art within the space yeah. of the gallery that's experienced by an individual who, as we kind of said at the start, has a real like postmodern like, oh, this is what I bring to it and so therefore this is what I'm taking away, yeah. whether or not that has a relationship to what the artist intended. I know it, that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that, yeah, I guess the, the work ethic thing, a lot of people would see art and particularly public art as frivolous pursuits, which, and I I think that's quite an interesting distinction between art and craft, and it's definitely a Protestant thing. It's craft being sort of something that has practical use, you know, like 
doing pottery or something versus sort of, um, you know, the more sort of like oh, abstract or conceptual. Conce- or, yeah, yeah. Or painting or what have you. Yeah, what I mean, it seems like to me, I'm sure you have more to say about this than maybe I do, but it seems like there's a real contradiction in culture, capitalism, but also like, you know, even within those circles where people are critical of capitalism around the value of art and whether, as you say, it's like either frivolous or quite decadent in the, you know, to be able to study art and practice art is sort of seen as a kind of decadence or a luxury that isn't afforded to most people. It's not really real work or anything like that. I don't know if you want to comment on that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I just think everything's sort of like, I mean, public perception of art, yeah, definitely is, it is like kind of distrusted. And I think that's in the way that like it is sort of seen as like a luxury. Um, so, and, and this is the sort of thing that I like to, like I'm trying to get at is that sort of like a lot, like we're materially as an artist, you know, you have more in common materially with, you know, just an average sort of like, you know, member of the public, but then you're allied with wealthy individuals who are buying yeah. and consuming your product and I think that that's where that sort of distrust comes from is because people with expend, you know, with with that income can purchase art. Can buy you off. <laughs> well, yeah, essentially. But it's also like your work isn't being shared then. It's sort of like yeah. going into it's a speculative asset and um, it's often not shown to the public. Yeah. It's sort of like this privatisation of something that I think is actually something that's worth sharing I mean, to, to be fair, I imagine like a lot of like collections, private collections do get loaned, um, you know, like if there's like a retrospective or something, like they'll loan the artwork out, but then it loan, you know? Yeah. Again, it's sort of this capitalist language about sort of privatizing access to something, you know, because art is a product or a byproduct of social happenstance. It's not, it's not in a vacuum. Yeah. I mean, and if it, if people do say like, you know, the artist is, I think, you know, the artist as genius is, is bullshit as well. You can't make without something going in. And uh, being part of, yeah, whatever is happening yeah. socially, politically, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think I'm glad you said that because that was sort of the other side of that contradiction that I was maybe observing is that there's like distrust, as you say, of artists or people who are invested in art mm-hmm. by, you know, the quote-unquote workers, <laughs> you know, those that body who yeah. is always invoked. But then also I think most people recognise that we as socialists or whatever people who are critical of capitalism, anti-capitalist, don't envision a world where we would only be making things because they have a a utilitarian value or like, you know, or they have, you know, a function. Mm. We would be allowed to produce and enjoy things because they were William Morris, who's more craft-based, is like useful or beautiful, you know, and yeah. so there's a whole lot of scope there to make a whole bunch of stuff. Not even talking about, for me, it's like literature, but the function of art, the arts, and being able to imagine, mm. put together what a different world might look like beyond that whole capitalist realist yeah, hellscape. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it's sort of like looking beyond just the rational and, and being able to sort of speak, I guess, metaphysically. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could tell me a little bit about what it was like to be at art school. 
and whether these are the kind of conversations that are going on like at art school there's obviously like quite a like memified image of what it is like to be an art student <laughs> you could maybe confirm or dispel that uh no the the rumors are true <laughs> <laughs> no uh i think uh, i went to art school at a very interesting time just because it was sort of like i mean it's kind of boring but like my year was like the last year where it was like a four year um bachelor's degree um now it's like you could do four years and just get the bachelor's or you could do four years and get your honours. So I look at, I guess I was at the at the very end of sort of like this very loose and um, sort of self-driven course. So a lot of it was really just you sort of like coming up with what you wanted to do and then writing a proposal and be like, this is what I'm going to do, da, 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 da. And you kind of, you wouldn't even really do that much writing or um, you didn't have to, uh, you didn't have to like, read a whole lot that's since changed so it's a little bit more academic and it's more in line I guess with the university as a whole uh, you know you that does sound good but like if you think about art school as being like this place where you've got all the resources all the equipment and things it's kind of like it's a bit shit because you're you're basically yeah you, you get four years of using all that equipment being able to sort of like um, develop a practice around those sorts of tools but now it's sort of like condensed. Yeah, and I guess I'm quite sceptical of the university in general. I just have a real issue with the way they are run, basically for profit. And since I've left, the art school has sort of been providing like papers and courses for people taking like product design uh, or yeah. doing product design, which is a new degree. So, yeah, it, it seems like it's sort of just becoming more and more imbued with that sort of trade school aspect. That's so interesting, actually. I wonder if I didn't say I'd ask you this. Sorry. <laughs> Although I did kind of joke about it to you in the last couple of days. But we've talked a little bit about this distinction between art and craft. And our job is a lot of it is spent working in a maker space um, and working with kids around product design or adults who are coming in yeah. to design things like that. And that very much seems like where the creative money is at these days. It's all yeah. around that sort of side of things. Did you want to talk about that? Like I understand the uni is really heavily invested in maker spaces and stuff now. And so yeah. there's kind of a, a turn toward. Well, it's, it, it is sort of, again, born out of this sort of like Protestant work ethic sort of thing where you have to be your own entrepreneur to basically curry favour with God or be right with God, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I have a real issue with it like because it's sort of – we're not actually making anything. Like it's not like a manufacturing – Yes, yeah. You know, thing. The it, amount of shit that we help people make <laughs> in our job, you yeah. know, and, and again like actual, actual waste like, yeah. that I don't know – what I is try really not happening. to think about yeah, that part yeah, of it, but. like the actual waste part, but it is sort of like, yeah, and I guess this, again, something that I'm kind of getting into or interested in is sort of that shift. Like, I think it's representative of like a, of the economy as a whole. Uh, we don't make anything anymore, but we also have to make, we have to extract value somehow and we have to innovate, which is, as I've just recently learned through just Google search, is that, Innovation is just the creation of value. Um, yeah, and the repackaging of things in a way to yeah, yeah, yeah. just uh, so like what we do in the West because we don't do any of the manufacturing, any of that. We're not really connected to the tools for labor or anything like that. We don't have the means of production. I guess it's it's all out there. It's all off- offshore, 
and we have to just sort of like work to make things to sell here. Like, yes. you know, it's like just developing products. It's and a real it, landlordy kind of like vibe of, or, you know, that sort of like inserting an extra well, level of unnecessary labour. Or, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's just like taking something that already has like a bit of function and then like just making it pastel coloured, <laughs> I, I think. But it's, yeah, one, one thing I'm trying to get at is like sort of that shift away from sort of like meaningful labour. You know, and I guess it's called service industry, which in fact is like kind of like a, a thing that's where the most of the jobs are is service. And I don't know, I've just been trying to think about like how psychically damaging that is because you're basically like if you're working in those professions, you're basically there to facilitate pleasure to other people, which is kind of messed up. <laughs> you know, it's kind of this weird cuckoldry that, <laughs> that yeah, it, it, I don't know. I just, I just think it's quite bizarre. You don't really get it. You're there to like help people produce whatever that will make them happy. Yeah. Whether or not that's a good use of your time or good, you know, outcome yeah. for them or whatever. It's very much like. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. You're a midwife to this sort of. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. And I'm just kind of, yeah, I find it just cause it's quite interesting. Um, One thing, can I just um take you back a little bit? You just made me think about, so we're talking about, the sort of tension around whether art is like, you know, a, a sort of luxury, a distraction from, mm. you know, real work, meaningful work, meaningful creation, whatever, versus it should be for all people and stuff. And I wonder if any of the sort of negative feelings that people have around art also has to do with negative feelings toward this idea of like specialists or like, I guess it's also related, this might be an opportunity for you to talk about like, anti-intellectualism or stuff Mm. like that or like anti-elite kind of stuff because I feel like we have this bizarre again culture where and it's totally manifest in the maker space (laughs) where you are never really you don't become good at any one thing really you know you're not actually mastering any one skill and producing stuff in a way that's Mm. sustainable and um, meaningful and and useful to people. You become a like really crappy jack of all trades (laughs) who's just kind of like juggling all these plates of of bits and pieces that you're doing for yourself, but never really well. And it's this really disorganized form of production and creation um, that seems very capitalist, but we're all like, you know, these little individuals who are just doubling up on all these, (laughs) you know, our, our poor skills. Yeah, I don't know if, if that resonates with Yeah, because we're outsourcing all the labour to the machines and really the, the machines aren't at fault for our shitty making. Like they're not, you know, if you'd poorly design a file or something for like laser cutting or whatever, that's on you. It's not like the machine's fault. I feel like there's just this real desire on the part of, of people to be like, I'm good, like I can do these things myself. I can fix this random thing at my house or I can you mm. know, make my own T-shirt and stuff like that. Mm. And it's giving people a real false sense of like their own part in the scheme of like producing things and living and, you know, all that kind of stuff and work. And yeah. it's just like you don't actually need to do this. It's actually, The, the <laughs> you know, T-shirt thing is is a is pretty good example because it's like, you didn't really do anything to make the T-shirt. Yeah. You just bought it and then you just slapped like an image that you found online. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that's uh, – now I'm thinking of like that, like maybe it's the Century of Self, the Adam Curtis documentary, and uh, where he's looking at sort of um, Benet's and like that sort of like we need to make products 
but they need to have sort of like some kind of like affirming quality. So I think the example he gave was like the sort of cake batter mix and it was like, oh, you know, but the, the sort of housewife, because it was marketed towards that type, yeah. um, they needed to have like be part of the process in yeah. some way to get some kind of like affirming quality from it. And so like they introduced like, oh, the just like add an egg. Yeah. It's like, that's enough. Yeah. That definitely feels like a lot of the. Well, that comes back to that sort of like, you know, that we don't really make anything anymore. We place a lot of, I guess, value in the design. Yes. Uh, And it's, it's part of as well of a affirming is a good word to introduce around, like I think around like identity and stuff as well. So it's like everything is custom and Mm. personalized and stuff, but yeah, because you yeah. got to be an individual. That's it. That's you got to be an individual. <laughs> you got to have the things that I guess symbolize you. So you know, it's like the, a little bit of flair or something. You know, like to sort of like set you apart, but it also makes you part of a whole because you are doing the same thing as everybody else. Yeah. And I think that yeah, I know that all comes back to the sort of that pleasure industry sort of focus, where it's just sort of like about finding affirmation or yeah, um, creating to affirm your sense of self rather than to actually, you know, against what we started mm. this with of using art as a way to create to elicit kind of like or challenge people mm. and, and pose questions and stuff like that. And, and get, to challenge the the actual consumer or that's a poor choice. I was going to say like <laughs> that. I would say the reader, I'm always used to saying because oh, yeah, that's the yeah. function of literature. I don't know what do you call like a viewer. A viewer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. I've got a few questions left for you and maybe I'll just start with this one and say we talked a little bit about you being at art school. I'm interested to know how you found the transition out of art school and into work, but not, and I I mean this in the nicest possible (laughs) way, (laughs) you know, not working as an artist, but practicing art on the side of working. And what is that like? Is it easy or hard to do to balance those things? How realistic is it to actually be a working artist? Yeah. I, I mean, like for me, working at the Honey Factory after and while I was studying was actually quite useful because it, I guess, was kind of research yeah. <laughs> in, in a way. And it got me to think a lot more about work and labour and, and that sort of balance. And now that you're finished, do you find that you get any inspiration from working now or well, I suppose it's the balances off a wee it's bit because now you work It's a different job. And, uh, yeah. So working in the honey factory is quite like an isolating sort of thing. It was, uh, you know, a lot of machine noise. You couldn't really talk to anybody. It's a real repetitive task as well. Like I was literally just putting caps on jars and packing boxes at the other end and it was two people. So it's quite like an antisocial environment, but then it's also quite like a weirdly sort of like reflective experience like it's just quite monotonous but then in their monotony is I guess it's quite meditative but that shouldn't really dispel like the mundane and uh sort of I guess what what felt like to me was like sort of like I wasn't really using my uh my gifts <laughs> my gifts I wasn't using uh yeah I wasn't using my um intellect. but you had a little bit more because <laughs> versus the kind of service industry work yeah. that you're talking about. We are, yeah, we work in the pleasure industry. We, we basically gratify <laughs> this makes other people. working in a library seems so much more saucy than it is. But, yeah, no, um, but we would just work for the gratification of others and to sort of like fulfil and affirm their, uh, their impulses. That kind of labour leaves less space for contemplation. Yeah, you know? no, and it's, it is actually quite draining as well. 
I mean, God, some people have some awful ideas. <laughs> but also it's sort of the... Sometimes it's us. <laughs> sometimes, um, yes. Uh, but it's sort of like that sort of regurgitation of the same in, the same information over and over again can be quite tiresome. And also like, yeah, we're not experts per se, but at least we kind of done things quite a few times and it's like you know a guy that comes in and is like actually i do it this way or whatever and it's like i don't care <laughs> <laughs> it's democracy baby yeah democratization but- of access i think yeah that's a that's a good question like should any, everybody be able to practice art you know if we were to sort of like manage to uh you know rain and AI or whatever to like perform all our, you know, automate production and, and, and things, you know, would give us all this, I mean, a great amount of time to pursue things, but it just wouldn't work like that. Would There would be some kind of spigot factory that we would all have to like work at. And <laughs> I just don't think, yeah, I don't think, well, under capitalism anyway, and with that sort of Protestant work ethic being quite central to it, I think, yeah, people's understanding of pe- people would find something for us to do. Yeah, essentially, like the I guess that that upper class. So I can't say I would be too hopeful for a for a future where it's like you can just sort of like maybe work three hours a week and then make and do and and things and and so yeah, I'm kind of like hoping that that's the case almost because like I don't want to see more T-shirts or like, you know, people <laughs> with crappy like laser cut boxes or something, you know? Yeah. You mentioned AI and I said before we started recording that, you know, this is a thing at the moment. Everyone's mm. talking about like how they can incorporate AI into their work to make things easier for themselves or if they should because, oh, no, then AI is going to take their job over. And I'm seeing a lot of like memes in the like leftist kind of space being like, oh no, we didn't mean that AI could make all our poetry and art and we would Mm. still have to be doing all the manual labour. And then conversely people saying, well, if AI can make all the poetry and art, then that shows you how worthless it was (laughs) in the first place. Did you have any thoughts about AI more generally and art or um, how it affects art within capitalism? Yeah, AI is... I don't think anyone needs to be concerned just yet. I mean, if you think that the AI-generated art is good, then maybe you have bad taste. (laughs) And also I wouldn't consider what it's doing as making art uh, either. I guess my... It's collaging stuff. It's just, yeah, it's just collage. It's basically just ripping things from that already exist. Um, You know, it's basically just a fucking, like, it's just a Google search uh, engine. It just takes information in and sort of like, yeah, it collages it together, often in ways that don't actually make sense. It or, is so very, very um, postmodern and capitalist realist. There literally is no more than what already exists. Exactly. You know? So if art is sort of a bit kept within mm. capitalism. Gatekept. Yeah, um, <laughs> but also I guess it's like a bit of a, a I don't want to say a kept woman, a kept person to mm. the upper classes and stuff or mm. or within within a gallery or all of that kind of stuff. And if it is, you know, all these kind of negative things within capitalism, what would you hope that art would become? I suppose that all gives mm. inspiration to art as well. That's the thing, you know. What I'm asking basically is if we were to succeed in like changing 
our political economic reality, mm. what would ideally the role of the artist be and would they? what would their life look like? Would they work as well? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say they would have to be part of the project, not separate to it. I think artists sort of see themselves as, well, I'm talking for other people, but if you're like a working artist, you are sort of separate to like, you know. Like you commentating to, and yeah, observing as yeah. opposed to participating. Yeah, and I guess there's the, it might be easier to understand it this way. You have sort of more Dionysian uh, sort of like just making like learning through making, or you know, it's more practical. And then you have the Apollonian uh, sort of understanding of sort of like more research, more book-based. And so I see that Dionysian sort of being more that the sort of like I'm painting and making, generating work and outside your- of meaning. And then there's the more conceptually driven stuff, which might have some physical or some like sort of physical properties. Like it might be actually like a, a work, but it's probably more of – like an installation sort of style thing. Like it's got more depth and more understanding. It's like you're trying to share an idea. Yes. Of course, you can't purchase ideas. Well, I uh, like what so you're saying not- that it would be less about, like, say, creating these discrete works mm. for to be consumed in a particular yeah. kind of way and more about figuring out how you want to read and respond to the world and other people yeah. and share that reading and stuff with other people and yes, um, yeah, yeah. it would be Absolutely. more social function. It would. And it wouldn't. Yeah. Cause I feel, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that working artists uh, have a product, <laughs> uh, have something that could be purchased and can be sort of like, will take place in the marketplace. You know, they're more active yeah. in the market and you know, there's sort of more, yeah, like more concept driven artists. Um, I guess it's, you know, who are working maybe more in like the public art sphere it's less, um, less private. So I think that sort of more like research-based artist obviously probably is working as well, but is more, you know, is more cognizant of like what's going on in like social realities than the artist who's sort of more practice-driven. Because, again, it comes back to sort of like if you're a working artist and you're practicing, you know, you're no, off, I mean, I, I say it like the, there is a distinct two factions or whatever, but it's not usually not the case. It's just like if you are one of those bigger artists who has like a studio of artist assistants or whatever and you're just pumping out this this work, you've aligned yourself with capital, with you know people with money. And the things that you are making are for private consumption and you are largely part of that sort of like pleasure industry. You're consenting essentially to being... Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the conversation that I have had in the past around art is always around, like, art is propaganda for capitalism, basically, Mm. that kind of, like, you can have art that starts off questioning a political economic reality, but it will always end up being folded into that to work as propaganda for that system. Yeah, And the fact that it's allowed to exist, even if it's critical of Mm. the system, endorses the system do you oh, know yeah, what I mean yeah, because you say yeah. that well oh capitalism will say well we tolerate this amount of like eccentricity from yeah. our artists and we we actually encourage people to be critical of capitalism <laughs> meanwhile like what does that yeah. have to do with like actual um, material yeah circumstances or people's ability to feed and house themselves but like oh but we allow this kind of stuff so therefore we're we're like doing well yeah. we're in a good like healthy because that's a market <laughs> exactly exactly yeah, no, that's that's a good point. It's really tricky 
as an artist to sort of be cognizant of that being knowing that like anything you do or create will eventually sort of be uh, accommodated. But that is again to buy. I mean, we can say that, but it's so sad because then it reinforces what we started this whole conversation with, yeah. with this capitalist realism thing that like there's literally nothing you can produce that wouldn't end up being yeah. propaganda for the system or whatever. And so it's a very, if yeah. that's true, that it is really hopeless. Then yes. Yeah, exactly. I guess you will. Though, what's the point then? Exactly. It's so quite a depressing <laughs> on life. It is. And, and, and I, I, that's the trap with the sort of, oh, I don't want to say trap, but it's like, that's the problem with, I guess the one issue that I have with, Mark Fisher's writings is that you can sort of trace through his writing as well that it's like that the melancholy that he experiences is from that sort of understanding, but it also affects the way he writes. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and the conclusions that he comes to. And I think like, and I guess that, that was what I was trying to get at with the my last, you know, the more than this e- e- exhibition was sort of like grappling with that sort of reality of that there is nothing more than than this. So like, what what do we do? And I guess the way I answered it was that you just got to like, you got to just make fun of it. Yeah. You got to have a little bit of fun and sort of like wallow, you know, yeah. in, in the mud, just be, just get, get dirty and just like throw things around. Yeah. And, you know, it is uncomfortable, but what what other option do you have? Exactly. You can either just sort of let it happen or have something to say about it. Yeah. Through whatever practice you might have, yeah. whether it's just politics or, you know, visual art or whatever. So mm. I don't think we need to be quite as depressed as, as we've sort of taken this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe yeah. we, can, we can start wrapping things up now anyway because we've been chatting for a while. But maybe you can just tell me a little bit more then finally about – a hot lunch project that you're yep. involved with. And like, it seems to me that it being an artist run space yes. is quite relevant. So yep. maybe you could talk me through that. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for context, like artist run spaces have quite a proud history, I guess, in New Zealand. Um, so an artist run space is what it is. It's artists running a gallery space, usually independently funded or, you know, if you're really lucky, you might get some CNZ funding. So it's usually like it's self-driven. And it, in terms of like Christchurch's sort of history, used to be like so many of, of these projects. And that was due in part because of cheap rent and decrepit spaces, which obviously don't. It's interesting. Don't, don't exist so much. They don't now. exist. They <laughs> yeah. don't exist at all. And so, you know, we sort of like saw this gap in the ecology, I guess, and that, that there needed to be that sort of staging ground for, for up-and-coming artists, I guess, for lack of a better term. And so that's what kind of drove us to start this thing. And it was a long, like it was a good couple of years before we even got this space where we did in, in High Street. And, yeah, that was, it was tricky. I mean, it's not, yeah, so rents are really high. It's also quite difficult to operate a space, like just organisationally as well. And I, fortunately, I had a lot of time (laughs) and I was doing a bit of study at at that point. So I was able to sort of like work there and do my study as well. Yeah. And so did you say that it operated for about a year? Yeah. So it it was a little bit over a year, maybe like a year and a half, but it it was 12 exhibitions of emerging artists from from here or um, from elsewhere in in New Zealand. And we also had like just different events and, and things. And it was all sort of self-funded and sort of backed 
yeah, we had, I guess we did, we did do one of those boosted campaigns, which is sort of like a crowdfunding sort of thing. So we did get a little bit of money from that. But, you know, important to us was making sure that we could pay artists, even if it was just like a nominal amount. Yeah. And, yeah, to provide that type of space for, for those, uh, for emerging artists. And, and to have something in the city that's not just um, a commercial, you know, yeah. I feel like at the moment it's just like luxury apartments and commercial spaces. Yeah. And- Hospitality. Yeah, and we do a thing in the book as well. We had a little sort of – it was like a wide-ranging interview at the beginning and we were talking about the space as sort of like a response almost to the rebuild yeah. um, and sort of identifying the issues with, with the rebuild and in particular for the area where we were, which did have significance to sort of like there was high street projects that were um, – I think it was Java or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's like all oh, – I think Tony Delittle might have had – like a studio in the same block of where we were. Anyway, you know, it has significance to that sort of like artist run or just artists in general. But, you know, it's sort of like this area of activity where it used well, it used to have activity had sort of become quite dead. Like it was basically a dead zone. So like after after 7 o'clock or, you know, 6 o'clock or whatever, like just no, there's nobody around. Yeah. There's no nightlife. There's no like sort of activity. And we kind of saw that as like quite an oversight. And that's still the tension I think that yeah. you see in the city, eh? Like, and even with all the stuff around like noise and just like the extent to which the city is like a bit of a top-down project of like what we're getting versus what we actually yeah contribute to building. Well, the idea of like it's sort of being divided into precincts is also like quite it's, it's quite Foucauldian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's like a guy playing like uh, Sim City or something. You know, it's like. <laughs> Yeah. From that, yeah, as you say, that sort of God perspective being like, this will work. Yeah. And in actuality, it's like quite a grim experience. Yeah. And, and really like the best cities that you go to have sort of a mixed use or just like sort of like quite haphazard. Yes. Um, and allowing those sorts of. They evolve much more organically. Yeah. They're like a bit more like spontaneity and like excitement or like yeah. you know, excitement, but, you know, like it's more enjoyable because it's more active. And I guess we were sort of railing against that a little bit. Yeah, the book is sort of a record of that. It's a of huge that. book. It's, um, and because you've just released this recent, well, yeah, a few so, months ago. Yeah, yeah, in May. So, yeah, the book includes documentation from those shows, but then also uh, new page works from the artists as well. So it's we, we didn't want it to be sort of like a retrospective because that's quite self-aggrandizing. It's more about like what did we learn and uh, any good, I don't know didn't really come to a conclusion on how successful we were. I think we were successful just in the fact that we existed for, yeah. for that amount of time. But yeah, like I guess the one thing that came from, you know, from, for me, it was, like, it was quite a lot of work. Like it's again, sort of, it was, it became sort of like more of a, like a service job, you know, when you have it openings and stuff, it was like, I'd be working behind the bar, just like yeah. moving Dobros or whatever it was. <laughs> And you have all these people who just come and then like hang out for a drink, basically. That can be frustrating. I mean, like, yeah, but I don't think anybody was willing to then after sort of like to take on that, you know, that the responsibility, I, responsibility of, of actually doing something. And I'm not sure whether there's anything like what we did anymore. Maybe that can be a little watch the space to. To what? To <laughs> listeners. To, uh, but also saying to people. Maybe you should just hey, do something. Yeah, get off your ass and work. 
that's a lovely way to sort of like tie <laughs> things up. Yeah. If people would like to check out Hot Lunch, how can they do that? Uh, you can buy the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or uh, we're, everything we ever did is on Instagram, all the shows. Is there a place like Is it via Instagram if you wanted to like buy the book? Uh, we've got a website, hotlunch.shop, I think is the thing. No, I don't know. Otherwise, just get it, get it from the library. Excellent. That's great. Thank you so much, Liam. I have really enjoyed this conversation and it's been really nice to... Sometimes we get to talk about bits and pieces of this while we're at work, but it's nice to be able to. to yeah. Well, hopefully it was coherent. I don't know. Definitely. I definitely. No, it's, it's really good. Is there anything else that you wanted to add? No. <laughs> okay. Well, I haven't got any words of wisdom. No, it's been awesome. I've really appreciated it. Can you please introduce the song that you chose? Um, so the song that I have uh, chosen is actually probably is one that I've spent some time with and it's sort of like it's part of my thinking for my next sort of project. It is words uh, by F.R. David or David, I don't know. He's French, a French guy singing a song about how he doesn't have the words to say I love you, which I think is very, I don't know, endearing. It's it's a cliche, I guess. You know, a French guy singing English, like a pop song. Uh, and I, I guess I've been thinking around it as sort of like a, an ability to sort of like explain oneself or explain why things are uh, the way they are. And I'm thinking about that in relation to the movie The Last Boy Scout. So you can figure out what the connection is there. I'm still figuring it out myself. A little teaser. Thank you so much, Liam. My pleasure.
That was the 1982 song, Words, by F.R. David. And it was selected for you by my guest, Liam Craigsman. Thank you so much, Liam, for a wonderful conversation. Okay, so it's time now for a couple of resource reviews, and they're going to have to be very quick. First up, it's the 2023 miniseries The Gallows Pole, directed by Shane Meadows and adapted from the 2017 novel The Gallows Pole by the English journalist and writer Benjamin Myers. And I'm just going to play the show's trailer to set the scene. David Hartley, this is my family. The prodigal son returned. Are you not dead? No place is left in hell. The village is on its knees. What can we do? I can clip and make coins. Anyone runs off of the mouth, we will all end up swinging. It's a criminal venture. Fear not their laws. Fear not their wrath. There's risk involved, don't get me wrong, but I'll swing for it. No one else. Set in Yorkshire in the late 1700s, the gallows pole starts when prodigal son David Hartley first succumbs to a stab wound sustained through some classic skullduggery, and then on the very edge of death encounters a group of quote-unquote stag men who offer David a second chance at life so long as he commits to serving the impoverished people of his native Crag Vale. Without much choice in the matter, but with a lot of charm and recalcitrance, David staggers home to find a dead father, a scorned sweetheart, and a village basically brought to its knees by an emergent industrialised capitalism. Luckily, David has a secret weapon of sorts, a die that allows him to clip the edges of real gold guineas, melt those edges down, and finally press them to produce new counterfeit guineas. But in order to realise his subversive scheme to enrich the residents of Cragvale, David needs investment. He needs real gold guineas to clip. And so he enlists the help of his brothers, his cousin, his friends, his mouthy but wise love interest Grace, the local man of God, widows, out-of-work artisans, sex workers, in short, the whole community. And together this community sets about a so-called anti-heist to secure the necessary investments. The Gallows Pole features some of the best, the funniest, the most human dialogue I have ever encountered. The miniseries is funny, it's uplifting, and it's inspired by true events. I cannot recommend The Gallows Pole highly enough. It's six out of five red stars from me. Okay, next up, it's the current podcast slash YouTube channel slash book slash general project Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't, hosted by the amateur naturalist, Joey Santore, sometimes Tony Santoro. I'm not going to say too much about this whole project, except to say that in last month's episode of The End of History, I interviewed Environment Canterbury Councillor Greg Burns, and so it is with nature on the brain that I have been enjoying the Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't podcast and also the associated television show Kill Your Lawn. Says Joey Santore, the study and dedication to Earth's plant life has provided my gruff, misanthropic ass a lens through which to view my own place in the world, along with a sense of peace and humility that can be hard to obtain through other means. Plants, when viewed through the bigger picture of ecology and evolution, rather than what they can do for us, as if holding up the biosphere isn't enough, can provide us not only with an awareness and context for our part in the intricate web of life here on planet Earth, 
but also with a philosophical underpinning that will enable us to weather and withstand some of the dark elements coming our way. For Joey Santore's infectious enthusiasm, and also for his incredible Chicago accent, I give Crime Pays But Botany Doesn't four red stars. Okay, that is absolutely it from me for this episode. I'm sadly out of time. But just before I go, a couple of details, re a couple of Canterbury Socialist Society events that are coming up. If you catch this episode of The End of History quick enough, you may be able to attend our Standing Orders event this Friday, the 28th of July at 5pm. This is an informal drinks. We like to say we're putting the social back in socialism And it's going to be held this time around at Punky Brewster Craft Beer Fillery, which is kind of in Rickerton. If you can't make it this time, we'll be repeating this social event on Friday, August the 25th at 5pm, also at Punky Brewster. So do feel free to come on down. You are not required to be a member of the CSS or any other socialist organisation. It's an opportunity to meet some of the folk who are involved and maybe to ask some questions. In terms of educational events, the CSS is hosting a guest speaker. Brett Christophers is a professor at Uppsala University in Sweden, and he's also the author of The New Enclosure, The Appropriation of Public Land in Neoliberal Britain, and Rentier Capitalism, Who Owns the Economy and Who Pays for It. He'll be delivering the talk Fossilised Capital, why the transition to renewables is going too slowly, in which he'll be exploring the competing interests, investments and relations of both property and political power that hinder the energy transition and threaten to undermine the basis for both human civilization as we know it and our planet as an abundant and complex ecosystem home to innumerable species. This promises to be an excellent event and we are very lucky to be hosting Brett Christopher's The event takes place on Wednesday, August the 9th at 6.30pm at Space Academy in St. Asif Street. Bring your friends, bring your family, we look forward to seeing you. I'll be back with another episode of The End of History on Monday the 28th of August. Until then, ka kite anō. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more, you can find us on Facebook as the Canterbury Socialist Society or visit our website at www.canterburysocialistsociety.org.nz. Thank you, and until next time, take care.